Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. The Revs suffered their first loss of the 2019 season in their home opener, dropping a 2 nothing result to the Columbus crew. Uh, Jayasi Sardes was the lone goal scorer in the game with a header in the 26th minute to give Columbus control of the game, and he added a goal in the 96th minute to put the game away. Uh, yesterday's match marks the first time since 2006 the Revolution have lost in a home opener. Not a great result for New England. I'm Greg Johnstone. We have a full house today to discuss what went wrong as usual, I'm joined by Sean Donahue. Sean, how's it going? Uh, pretty pretty bored after uh, sitting through that game yesterday, but otherwise good. <laughs> Wasn't thrilling uh, from a neutral perspective, and it was quite aggregate, aggravating uh, from a Revolution fan perspective. Uh, and like the Revs, we're, we have a pair of debuts today. Uh, first, from the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, we have Carl Sutherland uh, on today. Carl, how's it going? Pretty much the same as Sean. I mean, uh, wasn't the best... Uh... Wasn't the best game to go to, but uh, we made it through. And finally, from the Bent Musket and representing the OK State of Connecticut, we have Jake Catanese. Jake, congrats on making your uh, podcast debut. Great to have you on. Is this another podcast that's going to besmirch the great state of Connecticut? And really, this is really how this is going to go? I, I, didn't dis- I did not besmirch it. I said it was OK. I think that's as good as you're going to get. <sighs> Fine. That probably is as good as you're going to get. <sighs> take, take the win there, Jake. Hartford, if Hartford had won yesterday... Yeah, I would have been far more upset. But alas, New England put up a double bagel yesterday. Well, one minute in the podcast, and I've already upset again. I think uh, our new guest, I think that's a record. So, uh, well, Jake, hey, I'll, I'll give you the benefit of going first on uh, what your key takeaway was. Obviously, it was a very frustrating loss for New England. But uh, what was your kind of main talking point after the game? Uh, the, the biggest thing that I know is a lot of us, we're gonna, I'm sure someone will focus on the final third creativity. Um, I'm going to focus on on the, the, the center uh, holding midfielder pairing. I'm not sure um, Wilford Zahibo and Scotty Caldwell are, are great pairing together. Um, we've seen this from Zahibo before. I'm not sure his positioning is always the best. There's a little suspect on the goal as Caldwell gets pulled away. Pedro Santos has space to, to work into to send him across his artist. But more importantly... Uh, Wilfred Zahibo going forward with his passing balls over the top didn't complete any of them. And, and when you have a team that likes to get out and counter and needs to create chances and get p- players into space, you need those players not from the attacking group, the players in behind, your fullbacks, your holding midfielders, to get those diagonal balls and get them to be accurate. And I think that that was something that's that's been missing uh, for New England for a while. And uh, we haven't seen really uh, in Brandon Friedel's system the holding midfielders get forward a ton and, and add um, when they're in behind and when they're trying to build up from possession. So that's still something that I'm looking to see the Rebs uh, improve on. And uh, we'll see if we make any adjustments for that in the coming weeks. I think it, I think it says something about Zahibo that uh, I almost consider it a success when he gets through a game without making a catastrophic error. Yeah. Um, so in general, I think he's been okay, but uh that combination just doesn't blow you away in the midfield. I agree with Jake. It's just, uh, it's not, it's borderline up there among the Revs' biggest weaknesses. And, you know, if they are going to add a player, which who knows if that actually happens, that's a, a pretty good uh, candidate uh, for a spot to improve at. Although they have obviously invested a lot of uh, 
capital in Zahibo. So it uh, looks like they're riding with him so far. The only thing I'll add to that, because I agree with all the points that were just made, is the one thing I did notice from Zahibo, and I was trying to consciously keep an eye out for who is going to you know, step back when Castillo gets forward, because Castillo gets forward a lot. Mm-hmm. And there were a few times where I actually saw Zahibo you know, making the effort to get back there. And you know, that was one positive I had from this game, was that Zahibo actually you know, was filling in for Castillo when he was going forward. Um, because I think that's going to be a big issue for the Revs this year is you know, finding a way for, for people to fill in when, when Castillo bombs forward as he's being asked to do so frequently. Yeah, and just to kind of touch upon it, I, I know you're giving credit for Zebo for uh, covering for uh, Castillo, but um, there was a video that Matt Doyle posted yesterday. I don't know if you guys saw it, but uh, that kind of broke down the goal and, and Caldwell stepping up in the press and Zahibo is just too slow to move over and to kind of cover the space that Caldwell left open on that goal. So, um, yeah, I, I think we're kind of getting used to these performances from Zahibo. Um, and just to kind of add on to a point that Jake had, uh, Wilfred Zahibo yesterday was four for 15 uh, on pass attempts in the final third. Most of those were long passes, so you have to kind of add a little bit of context to that. But um, not a very successful game from him offensively from a distribution span- standpoint. Not a very good game uh, defensively for Zahibo either. Um, it also kind of begs the question uh, about Luis Caicedo, who was out for a second straight game. Um, it was kind of reported last week that Luis Caicedo had a bit of an ankle injury that was flaring up, and that's why his minutes were limited against Dallas. But second straight week, he's not on the injury report. Uh, second straight week, he's not in the starting lineup. Um, I'll, I'll start with you, Carl. Um, do you expect to see Luis Caicedo in the starting lineup? And do you think that the injury is the reason he's been left out of the lineup? Or do you think that maybe he, his spot has kind of moved down a little bit on the depth chart? Yeah, that was my suspicion uh, starting out the season, that it was that uh, lingering uh, injury. Uh, but, you know, and we've, we've seen Brad Friedel last year um, kind of pick a lineup and stick with it for a little while. So I'm not sure if he just, you know, he, he said Zahibo won the starting spot or, or got it up because of the injury and, and he's going to ride with him for a few games. But uh, I do think Caicedo is the better of the two players and also the better system fit for for what Friedel uh, wants him to do although you know as I mentioned before I don't think either is the perfect fit uh, for the Revs or, or an area that they should be content uh, with their, their performances uh, I you know I, I personally I'm giving it another week or two to see whether uh, Zihibo is is the long-term starter in that spot or whether Caicedo gets back in the lineup uh, so the Revs you know it's tough to squeeze out information from them and and uh so I, I don't think we really know we're just gonna have to to watch and see yeah it, it'll be very interesting to see if Luis Caicedo uh hops back into the lineup I think his presence is a little bit missed and he, he certainly played very strong in 2018 so um I, I think that defensive midfield is is missing his presence um Sean do you want to get to your key takeaway for from yesterday's game yeah and mine is that there's still really no plan b for the offense and we talked about that a lot last year and you know talk in the offseason was that they were going to find a way to have more possession and that you know Carlos Carly's heel would help them find ways to break down defenses when you know the, the press wasn't necessarily leading to chances um but you know this game more than anything else to me showed that there there, there really isn't a plan b if the press doesn't lead doing you know, a quick counterattack chance um you know the revolution don't have a way to break down teams they had a lot of possession in the final third in this game um but never really looked dangerous you look at the stats and there was you know three big chances for the crew um compared to one big chance for the revolution and the revolution's one big chance was that penalty kick which you know again i think was the right call but also wasn't you know one that the revolution particularly did much to earn um so i don't really you know credit the offense too much for for earning that um 
But, it, you know, it's just disappointing to see the Revolution again this year uh, in a situation where they go down a goal, where the crew are content to, you know, sit back a bit, um, where the crew never really looked particularly rattled by the Revolution's press, you know, minus one or two situations. Um, you know, with, with all the possession the Revolution had, they, they couldn't break anything down. And they subbed out Pena at halftime because Pena was, you know, perhaps playing a bit slow. I, I don't think he was the only guy playing slow. I think I thought he'll, you know, in the first half was playing a bit too slow. Um, and it was also interesting that the Revolution... You know, if you look at the first half, played almost exclusively through the left flank. The few times it went to the right flank, the, the attack kind of died, and they tried to avoid that. Um, so I, I think the the unbalanced attack of the first half also made it difficult for them to break teams down. Um, there were plenty of times where the crew just completely laid off Brandon By when he went forward because they, they knew he wasn't much of a threat. I know he attempted five crosses, the most of anyone in the game, I believe, but you know only connected on one. And there were you know several times where he had 20 yards of space and still you know didn't come close to anybody with his crosses. So I think that's you know again my biggest takeaway. Of this game is when things don't go well in the press when you know teams aren't rattled by it and they're not creating easy chances for the revolution they still don't know what to do to break down a defense and um you know that's really troubling after an offseason in which they've made a lot of offensive additions that uh, i think you you thought would have helped them do that a bit better this year of course we haven't seen juan caicedo but i don't think that's going to be um the issue of you know that's going to fix the issue of creating chances caicedo's you know finisher um but they weren't really creating chances that i think he would have been able to finish in this game have we have we figured out yet? Are we going with Juan Caicedo or we JF Caicedo or would I like JF Caicedo too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine he is the person to go up top when he is fully healthy, and he was listed as probable this week. I, I kind of thought he might get a spot on the 18 and and move into the starting role or, or get some minutes late in the game. But I guess he's he's similar to Caicedo one. He's not fully ready yet, but um, I, I would imagine that when he is ready to go, he's going to move up top because it seems like they're losing a lot of confidence in Juan Agadello really quickly. Where's Brian? Why is Brian Wright not in the 18 in this game? If he's still on the roster, that's another thing I, I don't get. It seems like he's a guy, if you needed a, a striker to come on, you'd, you'd bring him on because no, nobody on the bench is, is really a striker. Yeah, I mean, you could you could probably you know get away with maybe putting you know Rennix or Buchanan up top. It wouldn't be the end of the war. Even Diego um, for a lone striker, if you're pushing up late in the game, you want two people up there. I don't think it necessarily matters for New England. I think the problem is that when you do have the lineup that you have, which Teal on the wing and Juan up front, well, now you're taking away really the only two guys who are your starting quality strikers behind JF Caicedo, and so that that bothered me both weeks is that I, I don't mind having both Teal and Aguidelo in the lineup, but I think I'd almost want them flipped. I'd want Aguidelo on the wing and I'd want Teal up front because Teal was effective last year. And when Juan came in, it was mostly from a reserve role and he mostly went out to the wing. He relieved Pania out left. So to have Aguidelo now go up top after the success Teal had last year, it seems very odd um, because you're, you're not seeing the adjustments from the players um behind the striker to create the chances. You know, the Revolution are posted up in the crew half almost the entire game. I think they had over 100 passes more than the crew did in the attacking half, double the number in the final third, and yet your best attacking chance was Edgar Castillo nicking the ball off of someone at the 20 and firing a shot high and wide from the bar. And that's like the only shot you had anywhere near the box in that game besides the penalty. So, yeah, there's there's problems with the Revolution creating chances, but th- these aren't exactly new problems it's just sort of rehashing old problems from the heaps era and the heaps era you had far better creators on the field you had lee win you had kellen Rowe. 
uh, and and you were able to get shots off. They weren't really great shots, but they were certainly better than the ones that Revolution are putting up now. To to go back to Sean's point, one thing that for me has been a bit confusing about the Brad Friedel era is that uh, there are these players like uh, Brian Wright. He's been he's been pretty complimentary of Wright in the past, um, and you can go back and and say the same thing about Haravo and uh, these guys. That uh, it's just uh, it's tough to follow Friedel sometimes where there are these players that uh, it seems that he's saying he, he really, uh, you know, values them and, and rates them. And uh, although, you know, personally, I'm not sure if Brian Wright's a, an MLS uh, uh, long-term player, but, um, you know, it, it's he's a, a player that Friedel has seemingly uh, expressed confidence in before, and it doesn't reflect in the 18, uh, which is just uh, makes it... Uh, tough to follow um a lot of his decisions but but that's another one that that uh, comes to mind that uh his his words don't always seem to translate into the lineups and if he does like right uh then you know why isn't he that option off the bench yeah it's uh he certainly has a lot of personnel that he can go to and brian wright is someone that we might see later on in the year but uh so far only one goal through two games he's kind of thrown a lot at the wall and not a whole lot is sticking uh maybe kaiseido too is going to change a lot uh of those offensive looks but uh so far the the attacking four of bunbury he'll Pania and Agadello uh, has not produced the results that uh, were desired. Um, let me ask you guys this. Uh, were you kind of surprised to see uh, the subs made at halftime? To me, they almost seemed like panic moves, not to say that I don't think those were the wrong moves to make. Uh, but there were some games last year when the season was kind of going in the wrong direction and they needed a spark and, and Friedel went to the bench uh, at that halftime break and kind of came out of the second half with a different look. And this kind of had the same kind of feel to it going to Diego and Renix at halftime. Um, do you guys kind of feel the same way? What, what was your interpretation of those subs? And and on that note, um, how do you guys think uh, Justin Renix played in his debut? I, I guess we should tackle that while we're on the topic. I mean, I think Renix, oh, I, mean I think uh, Renix was fine. Um, I think it's a big ass to come in straight at the halftime with whatever adjustments Friedel was going to make. I think what would have been easier and what Friedel should do more often is to try and make an adjustment with the players you have on the field. <clears throat> you have a 15-minute break. You have your players getting you know, a breather. You should be throwing them out for at least another 10 or 15 minutes. And then if the adjustments are still not working, then you give instructions to a newer player and see if they can make the adjustments. Um, you know, Renix... You know, I think just the, the team yesterday lacked aggressiveness, and, and Renix did as well. He did a lot of hold-up play on the right wing, a lot of simple, safe passes, most of them going backwards to maintain possession. At some point, someone from New England just has to decide to go forward and just start hitting shots. And in the final 10, 15 minutes with stoppage time, Renix and Buchanan both went forward and, you know, hit shots, and that's what you need to do. And, you know, if no one on the team is going to help you create something, then create it on your own and figure it out afterwards. But... um there was, a, there was an overall lack of aggression for New England yesterday in a game that Columbus really didn't do anything special in besides the one cross. And, you know, that was a game very much like Dallas where, look, the other team isn't exactly doing anything special here and you're still losing. Go make something happen. They made something happen. They tied the game in Dallas. They didn't make something happen yesterday. Yeah, I, I personally um, really was not a fan of making two substitutions at halftime just in terms of a, a game management perspective. Uh, because then you 
kind of limit yourself. You're, you know, uh, you, you don't have many options left over. It it really struck me when it looked for a second like maybe Heel might be injured and have to come off. That then you burn your your final uh, substitution before the hour mark, and uh, it ended up that he was he was just fine. But uh, you know that that really came to mind that you know you you leave yourself with one substitution over the final 45 minutes to either make a, a change in personnel, a tactical change, or or if there is an injury, then um, then you lose that that option. So you know personally, uh, I I did think the team looked sluggish and and wasn't uh, didn't have a great first half. So I'm not against making one substitution at halftime to shake things up. Um, personally, I'm a little conflicted on, you know, I, I thought it was good to bring Diego on at halftime and, uh, and to take Agadello out and I would have switched Pania to the right side and see if he could have been more effective over there. Um, although you do think that in terms of Rennick's getting his debut to have a full 45, uh, probably gave you a better look at, at what he can do. Although I wasn't, um, overly impressed and I don't want to be too harsh on you know a, a, a teenager making his MLS debut who's still adjusting to the level of play but at this point he is I think mostly a, a runner as Buchanan is and and is still developing um, so I, I didn't think also that that was the best position to put him in uh, you know chasing a lead and maybe that puts a little more pressure on him than uh, than you know other situations where he could have brought him in I would have maybe if he did, if Friedel was set on bringing in Renix to have his debut, I maybe would have waited until 60th, 70th minute and, and seen if some adjustments out of halftime could have could have worked a little better. So I, I didn't like the two subs at halftime. I thought that was uh, another sign of Friedel, uh, a little bit inexperienced, um, still learning as a head coach and maybe bucking conventional wisdom and... Uh, uh, you know, just from my perspective, I didn't think it was the the, the right move, but um, and it didn't end up really really working. So I I guess I'll pat myself on the back there. <laughs> no, I I completely in agreement with both of you. The the one other thing I'd add too is, um, yes, I do think Pania was playing kind of slow in the first half, but I also think the rest of the offense was playing slow, and I don't think it was particularly Pania causing the problem, um, and. Like I said, the Revolution really attacked almost exclusively down the left flank in the first half. Uh, I, I thought the problem was the lack of balance, and you didn't fix that by taking Pania out. Um, I guess you you know you kind of fixed it by bringing Diego in, but I didn't you know necessarily think Pania was the problem. And you look at the, the stats at the end of the game um, to to emphasize the point that they were really attacking on the left flank. Pania finished with more touches than Teal Bunbury, who played the entire game. And yes, you know, Bunbury moved up top at, at, in the second half, but um, I think that's really telling of the guy that played 45 minutes, you know, touched the ball more than the guy that played 90 minutes. Um, and, you know, he wasn't that bad. He had 78% passing. Um, he was the only player to get a shot on target in the first half. Um, you know, tons of combination play with, with Edgar Castillo. It, it, it strikes me as, you know, like Greg said, a very much a panic move to take off the guy who was your best attacking player last year and, you know, might still be your best attacking player. I think the verdict is out on whether Heal is actually going to contribute more to the office than Pania. Um, and to, to bring him out at halftime in a game where you're trailing one nothing. Um, instead of, you know, as Jake was saying, taking the 15 minutes to tell Pania this is how you should be playing differently, or, you know, the suggestion to move him to the right and, and put Fagundas on the left, like, like Carl said, um, any of those 
would have made more sense to me than just pulling Pania at halftime. You know, again, you know, like Jake said, if, if there were another 15 minutes and Pania wasn't doing it, you pull him out then. Um, but he is your your deadliest offensive weapon from last year. Um, and to, to just pull him in a game where you're trailing and to pull him in a game where the offense was really mostly flung through him in the first half um, strikes me as a, a panic move and, you know, not the, not the right choice in the moment. And, and for Rennicks to come on, um, I, for one, was excited to see him get some minutes. Um, I did think he looked very raw. You know, it's not surprising for a 19-year-old to have some jitters, but uh, he had 53% passing. He led the team, I believe, in um, times in times dispossessed with four. Nobody else was dispossessed more than twice. He was second on the team in unsuccessful touches, and this was all just playing 45 minutes. Um, there was a lot of energy from him. I liked his attitude. I, I liked what we saw from him in, in that sense. Uh, but the touch wasn't there, and the pass wasn't there. And, you know, I, I think he's a raw product that is going to be very good for the revolution in the future. Um, but in this particular game, he gave the energy of the revolution we're looking for, but the the product that they were looking for just just wasn't there from him. Um, so I think you you know hopefully down the line expect more from Justin Rennix. Um, and it was nice to see him get hit the field, but it, I don't think he solved the revolution's problems in this game coming off and uh, coming on at the forty fifth minute. Yeah, to, to go back to Pania, I, I've kind of latched on to something that uh, Seth McComber, our uh, esteemed colleague, has has brought up. Which is that uh, you you would think that Castillo and Pania would be a, a really dynamic uh, left side, and and it, it just hasn't. Um, I guess you know you gotta, maybe got to give it a little more time to to develop that that chemistry and have that that. Work. But um, I I just think that although Pania's better position is on the left, that he is still effective on the right. And that way, uh, he's not getting crowded as much by Castillo going forward, uh, playing with either Brandon By or, or Andrew Farrell. And to have that that space to expose other teams with his speed uh, and his pace on the ball uh, might end up making him a little more effective. So that's one of the reasons behind, uh, apart from also, I think Diego's best or second best position is on the left side. Uh, so, you know. I, I think that might have been the the best trio to to go with, uh, at least starting out in the second half. But uh, I guess you know we'll have to if Rita wants to try that out. Do you guys think on on that note? Do you think next week we might see Diego Fugundes move back to the left? I think Carl suggested moving Pania over to the right, which I would fully support. I think you want Pania and Diego both in the starting lineup. Would you guys agree that that might be the look we see next week? I think the look that you need to see is you need to not have one ideal up top. I think if, if it's Teal Bunbury or JF Caicedo, I think you have depth at the winger position, whether it's Agadelo out wide, whether it's Fagundes and Pania, that you can make it work. I think Carl's right that, that you need not only balance from the attack and not all down the left in the first half, but you also need balance in who's attacking from the left. If it's going to be Edgar Castillo bombing forward all the time, that does hamper what um, Pania wants to do. So, yeah, maybe putting him on the right side is, is a good move. Um, and also it opens up where now Diego Fagundes can cut inside and let uh, Castillo overlap, whereas I think Pena is, is more likely to stay out wide and come in farther up the field. So, uh, you know, there, there is that issue that, uh, that, that New England needs to work out, and those are adjustments that, that Friedel has to make. Um, you know, it's not like this team is not untalented up front. Like we've seen, you know, Pena's got you know, double-digit goals last year. Uh, Bunbury almost had double-digit goals last year. Um, you know, Fagundes, we know what he can do. Carlos Gills, you know, right now the leading scorer on the team, uh, with one, um, but we joke and that's still true at this point. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, I think there, there's a lot of little things that, that Friedel has to work out. Um, but there, there's not a lot of, you know, like you're trying to fit a lot of new pieces or, or new, you know, ideas, 
um, onto the field here. It's just a matter of, you know, figuring out how to, you know, get the pieces you have. Most of them are familiar to you to just create chances. And, and yeah, the team was slow yesterday. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that changing players at halftime is, is the answer to that problem. That's, that's a team-wide problem. Uh, it remained a team-wide problem after the substitutions were made. Um, I think we have to wait and see, um, you know, maybe, you know, a team, um, you know, like Cincinnati that's coming up, maybe that's the team that, that you look to break out with um, on offense. Maybe next week you go on the road, you continue with what you're doing, the more defensive-minded uh, uh, lineup. Maybe you do try and work more on countering this week uh, and solve it for uh, for the second home game. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Jake there, where I, I think that uh, Agudelo has, has, and it's, you know, after two games, but I think Agudelo has already played its way out of the, the starting lineup where it's, it's confusing. Um, and you wonder if, you know, if, if it's health or some, but uh, you would have thought that last season with Agudelo coming up on free agency and that he, you know, he's hinted uh, many times that he'd like to uh, have another go in Europe, that that was one of those seasons where players in contract years, uh, you know, looking at a, at a potential payday coming up, often uh, produce and have one of their best seasons. That didn't happen last year. And he's kind of in the same situation this year where uh, if he does well, then maybe he gets that chance uh, to, to go back and have another, have another run in Europe or uh or whatever but uh you know it, it's it's been really uh you know perplexing to watch because you see with a guy like teal bunbury who for his his flaws and i think that you know agadello is a more technically gifted player although maybe teal has a rare combination of size and athleticism and and uh you know that uh extra willpower uh to to attack and goals that way but uh, you've seen with Teal Bunbury where he was in past seasons dissatisfied that he got moved out onto the wing. And then when he got his chance to start up in the number nine spot again, you know, he, he really he really took it and made the most of that opportunity and earned himself a full season up there. And uh, you just haven't seen that from Agadello. And he, you know, he really looked at, I don't know if it was a step slow or if it was not having that, that extra um, – intensity to try to get get the result in the home opener but he he just hasn't looked very good the first couple games and i I think that's the spot where you really need to change in the lineup no absolutely i I think that juan agadello and teal bunbury um it's kind of interesting because in the past i felt that maybe switching them back to kind of the look we saw a few seasons ago where agadello was playing up top and bunbury was on the wing might do them good but it seems to have done the opposite where bunbury seems really kind of uncomfortable on the wing um, it doesn't seem to be working out at all. And Juan Agadello, as you said, um, through one one and a half games is just flat out not producing. So um, it'll be interesting to see uh, what they do with the offense from there. Um, Carl, do you he's had a- zero. Just just add Agadello has zero shots through two games as the starting striker. Not not great. Well, what's interesting, too, is I feel like he gets the ball and he has absolutely no help around him. They seem to kick it long to him and then he has to hold the ball. And he's looking for someone and there's just, and then it, and then it's knocked off of him. So, I mean, it, it seems like all the way around, it, it's almost like this team is still in preseason mode where they're working out a lot of kinks. And it's almost like it's a new position for Juan Agadello, too. It it's just doesn't seem to be working across the board. You know, maybe they should have uh, played a few more preseason games. 
Uh, I don't know if everybody will get that uh, that joke, but <laughs> it's a little bit of a stacked preseason schedule, and and to come out of that without having uh, the team ready uh, seems uh, seems not ideal. I mean, I'm just upset that they didn't do the they didn't defend their mobile mini Sun Cup because uh, I feel like you know coming out of that tournament, you know, we're defending champs. You know, they they're already starting the season on a high, and instead they did their Spain trip and. You know, they had to play Louisville again, which I'm sure didn't really help their morale at all, losing Louisville again. So, you know, I, I in my mind, I would have gone out to the desert and, and won another trophy. But <laughs> that's why I'm not the skipper. Carl, are you suggesting playing, you know, three games in four days maybe wasn't the best thing to do as opposed to, like, you know, working on tactics and training and making sure things worked out? No, I would have played four games in four days. <laughs> <laughs> they're almost doing that in May with the uh, overloaded schedule that they're doing now. They've added that Chelsea friendly uh, on the middle of the week. I'm so, <laughs> for, when they originally scheduled that, it was 48 hours before a Montreal game, which would have led to some tired legs. But uh, I guess they moved the the Montreal game an extra day. So an extra day back, yep. Uh, Carl, uh, did you have a key takeaway from this game? Kind of moving on. We touched on Sean and Jake's. Did you have anything else you wanted to add in terms of uh, what was your kind of key talking point? Well, you know, it, it's it's more of a larger point on the on the revs as a whole, and it's just I'm uh, frustrated, I guess, uh, or I don't understand the inability to uh, to learn roster building, um, and it's just uh, you, you know I w- I'll concede that uh, Carl Carlos Heel is is probably an upgrade. I don't know how significant an upgrade over Diego Fagundes. But um, they basically replace one of their best players from last season with a slightly better player, and then push uh, a guy who had what was it nine goals and ten assists last year to the bench. Out of the street, yeah. Rather than focusing on adding another dynamic winger or or another maybe uh, an even better goal scorer than Caicedo or, or an upgrade in defensive midfield, uh, just the roster building is, is confusing to me. And and we're seeing it play out in the lineup where you've got, uh, and I'm sure you know Diego Fundes probably isn't happy about getting pushed to the bench, but also that you know if if you look at it and you're bringing in these players and you know that Christian Pena is already pro- should probably be slotted in as the starting left winger and that that's his best position and that Diego Fagundes is either a, a, a number 10 or, or also a left winger, but probably not as effective on the right wing. Um, then why do you add another number 10 um, and, and just uh, overload that part of the roster where, uh, you know, I think it, it would have been more effective to focus on somewhere else. And maybe it's just uh, how it worked out with what players were available and who they could bring in. Although they've said that they were looking at, uh, at Hegel for, for a while and, and uh, really identified him. But uh, it's just, you know, and it's been the same thing for years where the roster is imbalanced and, and, you know, um, maybe it's not, uh, it, maybe it's a borderline playoff roster uh, it, when you look at it. But if the pieces fit together better, then I think they'd have a better chance than where now it looks from the early returns that it's almost definitely not a playoff team. No, absolutely. I, I think there's a lot of issues. And I, I don't know if we want to touch on this Brad Friedel quote now, 
uh, but he made a kind of an interesting quote uh, regarding their offseason move, uh, moves. Um, Brad Friedel, after the game, said, I don't think we had the telling pass today, but that's going to be a little bit of a work in progress as we go through it. A lot of new faces. Some people thought we weren't going to make changes this season, but as you can see, there's a lot of changes. Um, which was a bit of news to me because Carl, as you said, you know, they, they did make some changes, but, um, they added some redundancies and they didn't really address some areas of need, which we, we talked about last week. Um, and I, I think, uh, Jake, it was you that pointed out, uh, Two of the 11 starters yesterday are new to the team. Nine of the 11 players uh, are returning from the revolution. So um, a bit of an interesting quote, a bit of a head scratcher. Um, Jake, any, any thoughts on that? Oh, I have I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I'm going to try and keep it uh, short. Um, yeah, you, you, your changes are you've moved your cam to the bench, you've moved your starting striker to wing, and you've put another striker up top, and the offense isn't working, which is – not surprising. The offense really hasn't worked for some time now. Um, I don't think the revolution get credit for adding Edgar Castillo because Edgar Castillo was a necessary move. That's two transfer windows late. Um, Chris Tierney went down uh, in May and a replacement was not found for him until January. Um, that's a problem this team has had for a long time. Um, yes, the revolution look a lot better with a competent left back um, at D uh, on both sides of the ball. Um, that should not be news to anyone. That should be a detriment to the roster building that uh, we just talked about. Um, yes, Carlos Gill and the chance creating is is going to take a little bit of time. Um, we've obviously seen, you know, New England has seen slightly more of the ball than they've had in recent um, games or even recent weeks from last year. That's a good thing. Now you have to build on that possession and create chances from it. Last year they struggled to even maintain possession. They kept giving the ball away too quickly and getting counterattacked back the other way. So now, okay, we've had two games. None of them were good, but we do have a couple of positives we can build on. Edgar Castillo was the best player on the field yesterday. That's a good thing. How do we build on that and add that back into the offense? Uh, how do we get Carlos Gill getting the ball up to the striker? It doesn't matter who the striker is. The striker is not getting the ball enough. They're not going to get chances to score. Um, you know, yes, you know, Aguadillo could maybe take some shots on his own, decide I'm going to have a go from, from 20 yards out. Those aren't exactly effective chances. Occasionally one of them might go win, but that's not the way you want to build your offense. You want to have a more, I don't want to say dynamic, but a more balanced offense. Um, an offense where, you know, hey, if Christian Pena is not having a great game, you know, Teal Bunbury or Diego Fagundes is going to kill you. Uh, if you're not paying attention to Zahibo, Luis Caicedo, or Scotty Caldwell, they're going to follow up and clean up a goal from the top of the box. Um you know, things like that where, you know, we see all the pieces and all the pieces, I think, on paper are worthy of making the playoffs, but we see them as a unit on the field together and it's not working. I don't know if it's the press. I don't know if it's the other tactics surrounding the possession, um, but these are not problems we've just been discussing for these two weeks. These are problems we've been discussing um, for years. Um, this is not just a Brad Friedel problem. This is not just a Jay Heaps problem. It's an organizational problem. Um, yes, some of the players in the field uh, are part of that problem, but for the most part, it's, it's an organizational top-to-bottom thing. There's no one easy answer to solve that problem. Yeah, and and uh, it, if I can go back to the uh, the roster building point that I, I was on before, you know, I would agree that Castillo has been um, one of, if not the Rev's best player in in the early going. But uh, he's really, you know, he might be even even better fit as a wing back um, than as a straight left back. Uh, and and again, that I think goes back to the Revs' tendency to take 
what's available to them uh, rather than um, uh, identifying the the best fit for for uh, what they need in that uh, specific positions. And uh, you know maybe that's just the scouting department still ramping up and and figuring out um, you know their operation there. But uh, again, you know, even the Revs' best player or one of the, one of the best their best players isn't the perfect fit um, in that in that left back spot for the, the system and, and the way that it, it leaves the defense uh, exposed on the on the counterattack. But to to go to to Friedel's quote, um, I think it was even more bizarre in the room when you add in the. Uh, the inflection, the way he said it, and it almost seemed like he had a, a smirk on his face or, or something. There was just, um, I don't know. It was a, it was a, to me, it was the weirdest moment of the press conference and and post game interviews. Although you can add into that maybe Michael Mancian um, saying that I think it was something like that they they were dominating or something like that, which I yeah he, he literally said we dominated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Uh, but uh, I don't know that that quote. It's almost. Um, I wonder if it's an indication where we've seen in the past where uh, Jay Heaps went through uh, spells like this, where it was a bit of combativeness with the the media and I uh, get and the perceived narratives around the team, where maybe he's picking up on on the fact that people are are not uh, totally satisfied with the degree of changes after, especially after Friedel seemed to overpromise uh, last season about how how much roster turnover and changes that there would be and it seems to continue with uh, you know he's foreshadowing that uh, the, there will be a, a big addition coming up um, so it was just a, a weird comment uh, overall but uh, also I wonder if it's an indication of that we're not going to get a ton out of Brad Friedel um, while the Revs are, are struggling like this. Uh, soon after that question, there was an ill-advised uh, question about uh, the, asking Friedel to identify which players uh, looked slow. And uh, he had a short answer, and, and that was pretty much the end of the press conference after three minutes. So I, I wonder if um, looking into the psychology i guess of of friedel's uh quote there if that's uh maybe a, a sign of uh not a lot of uh insights uh to come in in the, in the near future yeah i i had the same take on that quote that's carl that i really thought it was kind of bizarre and i did take the tone as being kind of defensive um and you know trying to say there was this narrative out there that we weren't going to sign anybody but we did and and also this is an excuse because that's why you know our offense struggled a bit and wasn't clicking you know it's it's two weeks into the season. There are some growing pains, but the Revolution lineup had, you know, two changes from who was here last year, um, personnel-wise, with Castillo and Heal. So there really wasn't that much change as far as what we're seeing in the starting eleven. Yeah, you know, Caicedo might step in, and, and that's more change. But um, to have two guys change in your starting lineup going into the season shouldn't be that big of an adjustment. It's you know, it's pretty common that a team would have that. Um, the crew might be an exception because 
you know, they have a lot of continuity and, you know, some of their new, actually, I think all of their, you know, kind of new faces this season were guys that were previously on the team um, as far as, you know, starters go. Um, but it, it, it just struck me as both weird that he's, you know, kind of getting defensive now about how, that they made enough changes in the offseason and, and B, that he's kind of like making an excuse um, that, you know, these two changes to the lineup, these two guys, new guys that are starting were the reason the offense wasn't really clicking. And, you know, I, I also agree with Carl. I think Castillo is probably better served as a wing back. But at the same time, I think Brad Friedel almost wants Castillo and Bai to, to play as wing backs, despite not playing a formation where you should be using wing backs. It, it seems like he's trying to push both of them so far forward that they're you know kind of de facto wing backs in a in a system that you know you shouldn't be playing with wing backs. Um, so I, you know maybe that's what he wants, and I think Castillo can be really good for this team. Uh, on the other hand, hand I didn't think Heal actually had that good of a game. I thought he was you know a bit disappointing in this game. Um, there were several times where. You know, he perhaps had an opportunity to, to pass and, and was too slow there. Um, he took three shots, none of which were, you know, particularly great ones. And, and some of which were kind of more desperation. Let me take this long shot because nobody's open and I don't want to, you know, wait to, to find something. Um, but I didn't actually think he had a very good game. Um, I, I didn't think it was as bad as, you know, who scored said it was, which they actually had heel as the lowest rated revolution player in this match. Um, but you know, I didn't think he was particularly impressive. And again, maybe that is growing pains as, you know, Friedel, you know, tried to imply there. Um, but it, it, it strikes me as, you know, a weak excuse to be making, um, given there were just two different guys in the lineup that weren't in the team last year. Um, and just, you know, like like Carl said, I thought it was bizarre. Well, and I, I'm under the impression that that quote means that Carlos Hill is not caught up with the team um i mean he did sign i think he came over halfway through the the preseason in spain so maybe he's still adjusting to teammates i'm not defending that as an excuse but he is a key player in this offense um overall though i agree it's it's a weird quote and and especially too that castillo was one of the two guys that wasn't on the team last year and i I thought he was one of the better players on the field yesterday uh nine ball recoveries uh six uh 78 passing 19 for 28 passing in the attacking third. Uh, and then the key pass to Teal Bunbury in the first half, which uh, led to a scoring chance. Um, so I, I, I thought Castillo played great. So I, I, I don't think he's having any difficulties adjusting to the team. I guess maybe Buchanan and Rennix are the players, the new players that he might be accounting for. But I don't really consider those, you know, he, he, he almost kind of seem to fight back against criticism uh, when he said that some people don't think that we're going to make changes. And I think signing Justin Rennix and, and drafting someone in the super draft are, are changes that we expected to make. So um, yeah, the, the quote was very strange and I'm, I'm not totally sure what he's talking about unless he's talking about Carles Gil, who, as you said, Sean, I wasn't totally thrilled with his performance. Um, he seemed to be a little bit off passing. Um, he, he had a much stronger debut than yesterday, but um, maybe it's just going to take a little more getting accustomed to the team, I, I guess. Uh, Sean mentioned the the who scored ratings, and uh, and I, I'm not a, a the biggest believer in the Audi index, but um, if you look at the uh, the score for the Revs and and their opponents, uh, it it seems to indicate that they got uh, thoroughly dominated in their first two games, which I think the score lines were maybe. Uh, well, with the the crew getting the late goal, maybe that ended up being the deserved, uh, you know, two nothing result where it, it looked like it was going to be a one nothing game. But uh, I, I really think the Revs have gotten outplayed a little more than uh, people are are uh, are picking up on um, in in the first two weeks, and it's not a not a very promising sign. 
I mean, it, they're they're one Carlos Gill goal away from uh, being, you know, two two losses. One yeah. of which they had 33% possession on the road, and one of which they were outpossessed by Columbus in a game where you know the team felt they dominated. I mean, they they really haven't had any spectacular performance, and you know, obviously they were very happy with taking a point from the Dallas game, but. I mean, as I say, if that shot is blocked, which it very easily could have been, um, this Revs team has not shown you a whole lot that that you can really take as positive. Yeah, and let, I, I do want to defend uh, Captain Mancian here for just one brief second. When he says dominate, I don't think that's the word that he wants to use, but um, I think when you, when you look at some of the numbers, the, particularly the passing numbers for New England in the attacking half, yes, New England had the ball down there a lot. Now, they didn't do anything with it. But it's also not like Columbus did anything either. Now, part of that's a, a twofold thing. Columbus didn't have to do anything special because New England didn't force them to do anything special. Um, New England's offense was so bland and boring that it didn't take a lot to stop most of the even half chances New England had. Meanwhile, the only two chances Columbus really had were the first goal, which was pretty, um, the one that uh, Knight and Stonewalled. And then the last goal of the basically Zardis' last kick of the game to make it 2-0. So if you're looking and saying like, well, like, hey, the defense did pretty well and, and the defensive unit uh, has been improved this year. I'm like, I don't think that's a wrong line for Mancien to track out. I wouldn't use the word dominate, but I would say like, you know, hey, you know, we limited Columbus to a lot of chances. They really only made one. Um, you know, they had three of the best chances in the game if we take away the Reds penalty. But, you know, if I look at, the chances like overall for the crew, you know, six total shots, including one in stoppage time for garbage is a pretty good day defensively that we're not used to seeing New England have. So I, I don't want to say that, that, you know, we're going to pile on Mancini and say like, oh, you really can't say that comment. The defense has been better, but New England did not in any way, shape or form dominate um, this game or put Columbus into a position where they had to do something special to win it. And I think that's the problem that I have with Mancini's quote. It's like, you might have thought you played well, and, and I don't think you've necessarily played badly as a team or as a unit, but you also need to force the crew to do things that are special. That Pedro Santos ball for the first goal of his artist, that's a special moment. They only needed to do one thing that was special, and that was enough to beat you. I almost think uh, we're in danger of, of repeating the same thing as, as uh, maybe early in last season where the, the defense is uh, maybe playing a little bit over its head uh, right now. And if you look at the quality of the personnel and the fit and what Friedel's asking them to do in the positions that he's putting them in, uh, I think it's going to catch up to them long-term where uh, early, I think early last season when the Revs were on a pretty good run, people were saying, you know, oh, everything's working out. But uh, in reality, I think when they, and, and let's, be honest you know maybe um maybe columbus and dallas are both playoff teams but they're not i don't think in the upper tier of mls and when you run into one of those better teams we might end up seeing the revs give up four goals and but you know credit them with uh overall playing playing pretty well the first two games on the defensive side but uh i i want to caution against getting carried away that i i still don't think it's necessarily a good defense. And a, a part of that is the positions that Friedel is putting yeah. them in. I don't disagree with that. No, I, I'm completely in agreement with that. And I kind of wanted to go back to the, to the quote again and to, you know, 
the point that was made in the offseason by Brad Friedel um, when he was kind of talking about the offense. Um, and I think this, in, you know, going to the, the, the stats that, that Jake mentioned as well, this kind of all goes to that. And this was something that Friedel was quoted as saying um, by MLS Soccer back in, in February and talking about the offense um, and, you know, again, talking about the statistics. And he was essentially saying that – so let me, just, let me get the exact quote here because I have it in front of me. But I just scroll past. Oh, here we go. Contrary to what some people may have thought or expressed, we were in the top portion of a lot of stats with regards to corner kicks, attacking half entries, entries in the box, and things of that nature. But we only scored forty nine goals. So you know, it, it kind of leads to me to believe, along with Mansian's quote, there's kind of a, a fallacy of belief from the Revolution that you know the offense is actually doing things well. Like, hey, they had eleven shots this game. Hey, we had a tons of tons of passes in the offensive third. And you know, yes, they did that last year, and that's kind of by design of, of Friedel's tactics. Um, you know, they, they win the ball higher up the field. So yes, they, you know, when they have passes, a lot of them are higher up the field, but that doesn't mean the offense is doing well. And the only problem is finishing. I think when you saw this game, finishing was not the problem. They didn't get in positions to actually finish chances. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like this policy of belief here. Yeah. How, I forget the number. I've looked it up a handful of times. They had something like some absurd number of corner kicks last year. They led the league in, in corners. I would love to know how many chance like legitimate shots or chances were created from those corner kicks because a lot of those counters don't end up in shots they ended up with in in corners which is fine if you take the corner kick and get a chance out of it and and I think that New England hasn't been a great set piece team here for a while so if you're not getting into the box and you're not generating those types of chances from the counter from open play your corner kicks need to count your set pieces need to count um you know you need to be able to you know get lame penalty kicks like Zahibo had, and you have to convert on those chances. And they didn't do that yesterday uh, either. So it, it is, you can, you can point to a lot of these stats and say, these are good things. But at the same time, I'm looking at, we're looking at other numbers and expected goals and going, those numbers are not translating into things that merit good offense. And you mentioned expected, you mentioned expected goals. I just want to jump in. Cause I, I looked up those numbers. We were talking about it a little bit before uh, the podcast. Um, on 11 shots, the Revs ended up with 1.28 expected goals, and mm-hmm. 0.79 of those were on the penalty kick. Yep. Uh, and Columbus had 1.38. So even in expected goals in a game where it seemed like the Revolution, uh, you know, were in the attacking half the majority of the time, uh, Columbus kind of spent the entire game kind of bunkered down uh, and not really going forward that much. Columbus still had more expected goals than the Revolution, and the Revolution, with all that kind of time still only managed 1.28 expected goals. And as I say, the majority of that was on the penalty kick. That doesn't really speak well for the chances that were created uh, yesterday at home. Well, you look at the passing chart, I think it's you know very telling for this game. Um, and it applies to the crew too. The crew didn't you know have much at all going on in the Revolution's box other than their goals. Um, and of course, that, that Miram chance that was that was saved by Knighton. But you look at the Revolution's passing chart and the, you know tons of passes all over the field, but then you get to the box and almost none in the box and the ones that were in the box for the most part were, were unsuccessful. So, you know, it's, it's great to have this attacking third possession, but if you can't actually get the ball into the box or you can't actually get the ball into a position where you're going to have a dangerous shot, it's, it's, it's pointless. And it doesn't show that you're dominating um, if you can't do anything with it. Yep. No, I, I, I agree completely. Um, and uh, kind of on that note, too, I, I, my key takeaway was actually going to be that I think the defense played pretty well, considering they were asked a lot to do, which you guys kind of all covered. Um, I, I, I think that 
you know, the revolution seemed to want to get very aggressive in the second half. Uh, and, and so I, I thought the defense did pretty well. I, I, you guys already touched on it, so I'm not going to go too heavily into it. Um, I will say, too, I was a little surprised to see Scott Caldwell come off for Tayon Buchanan. Um, I, I understand why they wanted to get Buchanan into the game, and he, he had a little bit of, of speed. But I thought Scott Caldwell had a pretty decent game yesterday, all things considered. And uh, I don't know, I, I feel Diego Fagundes in the middle of the field. Uh, I don't know, I, I, I prefer him out on the wing. So I don't know what you guys thought about that, but uh, we, we can touch on it real quickly. But um, I, I don't know, I, I didn't particularly like that move from... You know, I don't. I don't mind it. Just to kind of throw caution to the wind late in the game. Um, you mentioned, you know, Diego in the middle of the field. I, I, the one thing I thought, the one observation I hadn't made yet that I did think, you know, when I was watching this game, was that Carlos Heel almost looked better when he got time out wide. So there were, you know, times where he drifted out wide, and he actually looked more dangerous to me when when he was on the flank. I know they, you know, they brought him in, kind of touting him as a number ten, um, but. This game in particular, when he got the ball out wide, he looked a lot more likely to create something than he did when he got the ball in the middle of the field, which is, again, is is you know kind of problematic when you talk about roster construction as as Carl did earlier. Um, they have so many wingers now, and you know m- many of them better on the left than the right. Um, so, but but heel to me actually looks more dangerous when he got in, in those wide positions. Um, but it, you know, as far as the Caldwell sub, I I thought Caldwell had a decent game. Um, but I don't mind, you know, kind of throwing caution to the wind late in a game like this. And I think that was, you know, not to knock heaps this, you know, <laughs> this late in the game. But I thought that was something that sometimes, um, you know, you would have liked to have seen more from him. So that that was one move I I didn't mind um, on Buchanan. I thought he looked extremely raw. I think that was, you know, even Jeff Lemieux tweeted that out in preseason that you know he was raw and probably maybe not ready for for the professional level right away. Um, and I think that kind of kind of panned out a lot of speed and a lot of attacking energy, which is great. Again, um, some to Renix, but but you know just looked raw to me i think that's my cue to uh to toot my own horn again where i uh w- when the revs first acquired uh heel um i initially against uh, uh the uh public uh consensus uh thought that it would be wiser to play him um out on the the right flank uh as opposed to as the the number ten, um, as as I mentioned that that squeeze that they put uh, Diego Fugundes in, where he's not really a right winger, and um, he Panias on the left wing, and uh, I would like to see uh, heel a little bit more out wide and and see what he could do out there, and uh, maybe that's although it seems that they've settled in on on him as as their number ten, and and when you're Playing or you're paying a, a player that much and and it built him up as much as as they have as this uh, game changing signing. Uh, I think they've maybe committed to him in in the center of the field for a while. Uh, Buchanan, I you know, similar to Renix, I just think that uh, you know I'm not sure if he's ready. Um, and I I would like to see, uh, although you know, I think it's not the best. And I know there are. You know the Caicedo uh, two injury and and stuff like that, and and then there's starting Agadello and and Bunbury, but uh, you know it's not encouraging to me that those are a rookie or two rookies, one of them a homegrown, one of them a draft pick, are two of your substitutes in a game where you're looking to bring a difference maker off the bench. Uh, I think ideally and doesn't really fit the Revs' MO, but you'd like to see them maybe get loaned out to a USL side to uh, pick up a little more experience, uh, 
maybe even to rev south with uh, Heaps and Tom Sohn. But uh, again, you know, that's wishful thinking. I don't really think it's going to happen. Now, the only thing I'm going to add is I don't I don't mind necessarily taking off Caldwell. I'd rather take off uh, Zahibo, who's been on a yellow card at that point for the better part of an hour. Second straight week, uh, Zahibo gets a first half yellow, and he finishes the game. Um, it, I know the Revolution have depth at the holding mid spot. They can rotate in when uh, Luis Caicedo is uh, is healthy. Um, you know, I don't mind taking off one of them, uh, one of the holding mids to bring on another attacker the final 10 minutes. You know, yeah, throw a little caution in the wind, get beat on a counter, give up a goal, it's fine. Um, that part didn't bother me. Um, Rennix and Buchanan, right now they are what they are. They're, they're first-year professionals. Uh, they're young. Uh, they're eventually going to be able to show off some of their speed and some of their skill, um, but it's, it's going to take time. I think Rennix is probably a lot closer, um, and bringing him on at halftime probably made a lot more sense with his um, under-20 experience um, than Buchanan, who, you know, yeah, Buchanan and Jones probably should go hang out um, in Hartford or in Birmingham for a little while. Um, and get some game minutes, but that's not something New England's been big on um, the past couple of years. So um, we'll see how it goes. But no, I, this, the substitutions, it didn't bother me. The, the first half subs, making two of them bothered me more um, than taking off Caldwell for an attacker down by one with 10 minutes to go. Like, that, it's, you know, fine. Um, you'd like to have a better option, but you've already put on, um, you know, your two better attackers in, in Fagundes because um, you're a little thin right now with uh, some options with some injuries right now. So, no, we'll see how it goes. I think as the revolution get healthy, I think that bench will eventually be a weapon, whether it's going to be Aguidelo off the bench or Teal late in games. I actually would love to see Teal out on the wing, uh, box to box, closing down games defensively. I think he did that really well a couple of years ago. Um, and I think that'll be a really fun role for him um, if he's not starting at right wing. Um, but we'll see. I know that sub didn't bother me. I, Shifting. I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it speaks to Luis Caicedo maybe still being injured uh, or that um, maybe he's not in the best form or, or whatever, that Buchanan is the, the choice over him. Again, a, a player who I think just isn't quite ready for, for that spot. And, um, you know, I, I want to add, I think there's been a lot of, especially hype over Justin Rennix. Um, the player I really want to see is Isaac Ankang. I think that's the out mm. of... Out of all the, you know, Renix, uh, you know, I see him long term this season uh, as maybe that energy guy off the bench. Um, and, uh, you know, whereas Anking, I think maybe there's some potential that he could become a, a starter and a valuable contributor this season. Yeah, we, we noted uh, that Anking was missing last week and we were a little bit surprised by that, too. Um, but. I'm not sure why he's been excluded from the 18. Hopefully we get to see him a little bit. He he seemed to impress in the 30 or 40 or so minutes he, he had last year, but um, I'm sure we'll be seeing him uh, as the season goes on, especially if things go south. I imagine we're going to be seeing uh, more of the young guys. So um, shifting gears uh, before we get to listener questions, um, since we have a, a referee expert, um, Jake, I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the, the penalty kick call. Uh, uh-huh. and, and whether I, I, you, you've kind of already told people on Twitter, but for those that don't follow you on Twitter, uh, I want your thoughts on the penalty, the, the PK uh, call on Zebo. And I also want to get your thoughts on the uh, red card that wasn't with Brandon by in the final minutes. Oh, yes. All right. Um, really quickly. It, yes, that it, there is a penalty that occurred. Wilfred Zahibo got got pulled back. Um, there was very clear uh, pass interference uh, in the end zone that re- resulted on the ball going to the two yard line. Uh, and then Diego Fagundes uh, fumbled it. Um, wait, I'm sorry, I'm getting that wrong. Uh, no, yeah, it's 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 a foul. Um, it, the problem is when people say I don't like the word soft foul, 
What I prefer is lazy defending or lazy foul. It's not a soft call. It's only soft because Zahibo has to go to ground to get the whistle. It's it's a very, very obvious foul. Um, I tell all the youth games, the kids that I do, I say, look, guys, if I can do an Ed Hockey Lee impersonation and go pass interference on the defense, that's a foul. And it's very, very obvious when you have your hands extended like that or when you pull back a shoulder that that you're committing a foul. And it's it's not necessary because the ball's probably going out of play anyway. I don't think Zahibo is going to get to it and do anything with it. So all you did was give the Revolution a penalty kick for no reason, and that was lazy, uh, not soft. Uh, the red card to um, Jones. Uh, this is a problem. I don't necessarily think the initial red card call was wrong. Um, I also don't know exactly what, what By is, is doing on that play. I know he's trying to jump into it and, and, and block it there, but at the end of the day, you are responsible as a defender for um, – your actions and and he jumped uh, into an attacker and he landed on someone's head and that's not a good position to be in. Um, I think if the red card had stood on review uh, that it would not be overturned. I don't think you can you can get the three man uh, review panel to overturn that and say that it was definitely not a red card. It's still it's a blow to the head whether it's an elbow or forearm or tucked in or something like that. Um, I, I'm not sure you can win that appeal. Uh, I was very surprised it was overturned on the field, and I know there was a lot of confusion. Um, there is no mechanism for the referees to announce their calls on the field to the stadium, and this, to me, is one of the biggest problems. Um, we did a a brief uh, collaboration column on SBNationSoccer.com for the preseason. What rules would you like to see? And the biggest one that I had was we need a way to have the referees explain their decisions. Um, we need to figure out the initial call. We know it's a red card. We know what it's for. It's a elbow to the head. That's fine. We're going to review it because we're, we're going to confirm that it is serious foul play and, and that's fine. We're going to go to review. After the review, we need Dave Gantar to come in and explain. We're taking the red card away. It is not a serious foul play. It is incidental contact. However, it is still reckless. The decision by Bai to jump and try to block that play was reckless in nature, but his arm was tucked in. It was incidental contact. We're going to change the call to a yellow and then just issue him the yellow card. Don't do this X and hold up the red card and then issue a yellow. No, get a microphone, go over the air and tell the entire stadium, we're taking away the red card. We're issuing a yellow card. This is why we're going to save a thousand headaches and a thousand pool reporters lives. I know there's only one per game, but still uh, of explaining this stuff on the field instead of having to figure it out at the end, because we don't know exactly how the VAR mechanisms work. Um, so that was, those were my thoughts on, on, on the by play. Um, I think it would have been very awkward if the play had stood because I don't think you can appeal that play. I think the revolution would have been hoping that Andrew Farrell would be back from injury or they would have been finding someone else to play right back. Um, which might've led to Dijon Jones's debut at that spot, which would have been bad. So I don't know. It, it, it's a very, very strange play. I fully expected the red card to stand, and it didn't. So that was a pleasant surprise. And my guess is uh, if Andrew Farrell is not around next week, um, Brandon Bay will still be the starting right back. Yeah, I think they got a bit lucky with uh, having that that red card withdrawn because I was trying to think of what they would do. I mean, I wouldn't be totally opposed to Andrew Farrell playing with an eye patch just for entertainment reasons, <laughs> but uh, I don't think that's very realistic. And I think Dewan Jones would have had a very tough tough assignment on the road uh, making his MLS debut at right back. Honestly, it might have been Andy Baba. I think Andy Baba might have put him in the next man up. At yeah, no, right I, that wouldn't be wrong. That's that's a good shout. I don't, I don't think Andy Baba at right back would be a, would be a bad idea. But no, I just I had a lot of people who there's there's that play and there's one that happened. Um, we're recording this on Sunday. The Marco Fabian for Philadelphia kind of landed on 
Johnny Russell for and, and people wondering it's like, well, how what are defenders or in this case, an attacker supposed to do the defenders on the ground? How am I not supposed to land on them? I said, at some point, the players on the field are responsible for for their own actions. And even though, yes, a defender comes in and kind of sort of makes you jump over them. The idea is you still have to avoid contact as best as possible. And we've seen this type of play with goalkeepers. I know uh, Bobby Shuttleworth a couple of years ago got tagged a couple of times and there were yellow cards issued on the field and later retroactive red. So we've seen the standard for play of, look, even if you jump up and incidentally hit someone in the head or cleat them or something, you're going to get a red card because if I issue a yellow card, the disco is going to suspend you anyway. So we've seen that consistency. That's why I was surprised we saw the reversal on the field and maybe that's something that we're going to see a little bit more of is maybe some of the referees are being told, Hey, let's use a little bit of judgment here on some of these plays. Cause maybe we went a little bit too far. Um, the first couple of years we trotted out um, some of these interpretations and, and the straight red cards and things like that. Um, so we'll see. It's always sort of a balancing act. Every year you sort of learn new things, new points of emphasis that, that the referees and the leagues are, are working on and, um, we'll see how MLS goes. It's been a, a bit of a rough start, I think, the first two weeks here. I, I agree with Sean that um, I think if the red card had uh, stood, that uh, probably, at least in my opinion, Annie Bobble would have been the, the logical uh, person to fill in that spot. Although, uh, you know, uh, as I had mentioned before, Jones is another player who I, I just don't know if, if he's ready and that would have, uh, I don't know if that is the best, uh, the best spot for, for him to fill in there and maybe even see Her- Herivo, um, mm. that right back spot, which, which brings me to my point that, um, and I, you know, you can't really predict that Andrew Farrell has been maybe the Revs' most consistent uh, player over the last several years, just in terms of availability and it seems like uh, his eye injury, whatever it is, we don't know exactly, but uh, it seems that it's relatively significant, and it might be uh, a, a, at least a few more weeks until we see him. Uh, and that that right back spot uh, really is uh, in danger of becoming the equivalent of the left back spot uh, last year, which is so revs that they finally solve this black hole at left back only to then have the right back spot become that. And uh, it, it seems that uh, maybe, you know, let's say uh, they do add that no, another designated player or, or whatever uh, that they've been hinting at and, and we'll see. But uh, if that Giles Phillips loan deal that we thought maybe might've been out there has, has fallen through that, uh, you know, right back, uh, they've got another roster spot open and right back maybe is is where you, you want to allocate some money because you, you don't, uh, we'll have to wait to see what Andrew Farrell's health is. But uh, even even if he was 100%, that might have been a spot that you might want to upgrade at and then shift Farrell into that utility uh, def- defensive player role who can be your center back and right back depth. Yeah, and, and I think this is a good transition to listener questions because we have someone who who specifically wants to talk about right back. Uh, DC uh, mentioned on Twitter, uh, if you notice that the game, Miram was the crew's worst player and by struggled down the right to, to lock him down. Um, how concerned should we be at right back? 
both by and Farrell don't give the offensive quality you get with Edgar. Um, so I, I know uh, we just got uh, your, your opinion, Carl, but uh, Jake and Sean, is, is that kind of the spot that you're most concerned about after two weeks? I don't think the revolution needs someone at right back. That's going to you know provide a, a lot offensively with the, the offensive talent that on paper they have. Um, I, I think by is not good enough um, to be a starter every day in MLS. Um, I don't know if he'll get there, but he's not there yet. I think defensively, he's a liability. And I think offensively, he really doesn't add much. Um, I think the hope was that Bai would be kind of more of an, an offensive presence than Farrell. Um, but I think, you know, in this game in particular, and week one, really, you saw that, you know, Bai's crossing isn't better than Farrell's. Um, you know, it's, it's a weakness we've always talked about with Farrell that I think he improved on a little bit last year, and but still, you know, is not as good as you'd like to be. Um, but I don't think Bai's any better offensively than, than Farrell. I think he has the same issues where, you know, he, he's a little bit tentative and, and slow on what to do when he gets there. And um, the final pass isn't good enough. Um, and defensively, obviously he's, he's got a lot of weaknesses too, which, you know, are to some extent to be expected for a guy that's being converted to that spot and is only really played there for a year now. Um, but no, I don't think he's good enough everyday starter, but I do think Farrell, um, you know, last year, I think he was solid enough defensively and i think if you know this isn't the big the biggest revolution weakness if farrell can get back healthy um but you know the, the eye injury that farrell has we've you know haven't heard that much about and it seems like it's pretty serious um so if it's going to keep him out for a long time it, it, it is a big concern but but again overall I'm, I'm not concerned if you know they don't have a right back that provides as much getting forward as castillo i think the revolution are probably better off if they have a right back um that stays at home a bit more if they're going to be pushing um castillo up so much so they can you know, at least pinch in and, and try to you know help prevent against the, the counterattacks. I don't think you can afford to have two fullbacks that are pushing forward as much as Castillo is. I think you can make a very good argument that that overall fullback depth, both right back and left back, might be your weakest um, position um, because you can make the argument right now that Brandon Bay is, is your number two at, at both spots or Julia Lanibaba is sort of, you know, your third center back and, and maybe he's an emergency fullback. And that's not the best spot to be in. Um, unless you want to see more of Gabriel Somi, which I, I'm not sure any of us want to at, at, at this point, unless there's another elevation uh, for him this year. Uh, Brandon Bay is right now what he is. Uh, you know, Sean's right. You're transitioning from a player who is more of an attacking-minded player to now uh, a fullback. And and yes, the Revs maybe want him to be a two-way fullback. And and right now he's a zero-way fullback. He's there. He can he can man the position. He's he's okay passing-wise. He's okay defensively. Uh, yes, he's going to make some mistakes, and you hope that he has the speed, much like you know Farrell did when he started, to go and correct those mistakes if his positioning is not always um, the best. But yes, you, you do need, in particular for the for the Revolution, um, Castillo on the ball going into the box and going up the up the wing. You're going to see a lot more of that from that side of the field. The right back side, you're going to need him. To, you're going to need that spot. Whoever is at right back, whether it's By or Farrell or one of the other center backs who's come in, they're going to have to be able to cross balls into the box with effectiveness. And, and right now we haven't been able to see, you know, Farrell or by do that with, with a lot of consistency. And, and it's a problem. It, it limits what the revolution can do um, on offense. If, if JF Casado is going to be more of a target guy and you need to, you know, sort of feed him, you know, balls over the top, some of those balls are going to have to come from your fullbacks and, and it's going to have to come from both sides of the field. Um, otherwise you're, you know, you're going to have a game like yesterday where, you know, Columbus knows, Hey, the, Rebs are just sitting on one side of the field. Let's put all of our guys on that side of the field and just stop them. Um, and you need to adjust and be fluid. And, and it's something that right now, you know, New England, you know, struggles with making those kind of adjustments both individually and and, and as a team. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily think you, you know, I agree with Sean, you know, you don't need, you know, by or Farrell to be outstanding on the offense, Ben, but you do need to be able to have them contribute 
when it's necessary. And we've seen the first couple of weeks, it's starting to get to the point where it might be necessary, where we need that spot to be generating at least, you know, two, three, four good quality crosses or passes into the box or into the final third to let others create or shoot the ball. Well, I, you know, um, I want to go back to my my favorite talking point uh, this week, which is that idea of Pania on the right side, which which I don't, you know, um, in theory, Bunbury is obviously a much better um, defensive uh, player in terms of tracking back and his responsibilities and everything on that right side, although it hasn't turned into much uh, overall. And uh, I almost think it's worth testing out that if – if maybe offense is your best defense on that side of the field and the threat of Pania uh, maybe uh, keeps the other team uh, staying at home a little bit more uh, in, in regards to that side. Or, or even that um, you you have by not push up quite as much and stay at home a little more himself to give Pania that space. And, and possibly that leaves the, you know, the, feel a little imbalanced in terms of how everyone's playing but but then again if 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 the team knows Castillo is the one that's really pushing up on the left side and of course other teams are going to pick up on that too that the uh defensive central midfielders and and center backs know that specifically that Castillo space is where they have to watch out to fill that space whereas if if Bias stays home a little more and gives Pania that that room to work up down the the right sideline I think Maybe that's an option worth exploring, which maybe limits Vi's exposure in terms of being asked to do a lot and, and able to, to perform. We actually have a, a question. Uh, would you play Christian Pena wide right as opposed to left, essentially to uh, make the adjustment for Diego? Um, are we all in agreement that Christian Pena could play on the right side? Because I, I agree with everything Carl said. Uh, what are you, your thoughts, uh, Jake and Sean? The main point that Carl said that I completely agree with is, you know, Pania drops you defensively a bit on that on that side. And Bunbury, I think one of the reasons probably that Bunbury has been forced to, to play so many minutes on the right flank is that you know he might be your best defensive winger. And with Brandon Bay, you know, being asked to push forward, you kind of need that. So, you know, I agree with Carl that if you, you know, tell Brandon Bay to, to stay at home. And again, I don't think Brandon Bay offers very much offensively. So, I, you know, it would make sense for me to do that. Um, that yeah, you could put Pania on the right and just you know realize that you're sacrificing something defensively from having Teal there, and, and Brandon Bay has to make up for it. Um, but you know, I, I think Diego Fagundes is still you know one of their top three offensive creators, um, and you know for a team that's struggling to create offense, you, you kind of need that out there. Uh, so you know, I would be open to seeing the Revolution try something like that, and I think it you know could work. You know, I mean, Pania on the right again. It's 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 all about balance. If you've got you know if you've got Castillo and Pania on the left, okay, that's you're going to be obviously dominating on on the left hand side. So, you know, yeah, as long as the Revolution balance it out, if it's going to be Farrell stayed at home or Bai stayed at home and having Pania go forward, if they want to have um, Teal out there again to be more of a defensive uh, type player, particularly I think late in games off the bench, I still love that role for him. I think he was still great there a couple of years ago before he went up to striker again. Um, you know, I think that's going to hurt Teal this year. His versatility makes him so much of a weapon off the bench that he can go and play uh, winger if you need him to be offensive. Winger if you need him to be defensive. He can go up top and be a striker. Um, but I think you know, yeah, put you know, taking you know Pinia off after 45 minutes, it, it again highlights the same problems where it's like 
you know, okay, you took Pania off. How did you fix the team? You still had the same problems when you had Pania on the field. So rather than the adjustment of moving Pania to the other side, bringing in a different player, maybe Diego helps out Castillo by cutting inside more or vice versa. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that, that, that Friedel and the Revolution need to figure out, need to figure out quickly as far as balancing out where the attack and, and where the balls are you know, coming from. Um, because right now, you know, yes, you're getting into the attacking third. And then what happens when you get there? You know, what, what are the guys, you, the ball's here, you know, this person has the ball. Where is everyone else going? Where do we want support for going to pass it backwards? Who do we want crashing the box? Who's making runs to the near post? Who's making runs to the back post? Um, these are all things that should be sorted out well ahead of the game. It doesn't need to be perfect, um, but you do need to eventually, you know, generate more chances than what New England's been doing right now um, from inside the area. One thing just to note on, on Pania too, and, and him playing on the right wing, um, you know, at transfer market's not necessarily the the best site for always getting positions right. Um, but worth noting that they credited Pania as having played six times on the right wing for the Revolution last year, and in those six games, he had four goals and three assists. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if, if to the to the extent that that those numbers are accurate, it certainly indicates that he can still contribute, you know, very much so offensively on the right wing. Uh, I'm I'm gonna kind of move on to the next question, which because it, it, it's kind of in the same realm of what we're talking about uh, along Teal and, and Diego. But uh, Zachary Grime asked us, why does Friedel think that Teal is a better option than Diego? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and, and Sean, you kind of touched upon Teal as a bit of a better defensive option, and the Revs obviously are trying to work the ball up the left side. So you know maybe you don't need as much production on the right side. Maybe you want someone uh, to to kind of get back and, and play a little bit more defense. And I, I also think too, it's apparent that Friedel only likes Diego in the center or on the left it, it, I'm under the impression that Diego Fagundes we're not going to see him play right wing anytime like we did last season um do you got anyone have anything to add to that or yeah you know um I I just think that Teal and he's communicated this himself uh, although I I get what what Jake's saying about him being a great sub on the right wing but that uh, Teal sees himself as a, as a center forward, and I think he is more comfortable in what uh, what Friedel is asking his center forward to do uh, than Agadello has been. And so I, I would like to see him, to see Bunbury utilized more in that role where, uh, you know, I think, uh, Greg, you mentioned that Agadella was left on an island a lot of times, and um, and I don't think Teal minds that as much. Uh, and he's and also as as you know maybe the tip of the spear, if you want to phrase it that way, of of the press. I think that's a a better fit than than what um, Agadella has been offering. So I view it more. I know Zach uh, is is comparing Teal and and Diego, but I view it maybe more, although. They're not the same positions, but that Agadello beat out Diego or, or however uh, Friedel would want to characterize it to be in the starting lineup. And that uh, if if there is a change, I don't think it's – and, of course, this you know we're waiting for uh, Juan Caicedo to come back or to get healthy. Uh, but I, I think if there is a change, I, I don't think that Teal has played badly. Um, so I, I would move him back to the, the center forward spot and, and that Agadello is the one is the, the weak link so far, if you want to single out anybody. 
kind of on that note too, um, we did get a couple of questions about the forward position. Uh, any Revs UK asks on the back of the result and performance, doesn't this show how badly the Revs need an out and out goal scorer? And uh, DC also says forward looks like the DP needed unless uh, Hill plays a false nine. Um, Sean, I'll start with you. Uh, do you think the Revs need an upgrade at the forward position? Well, first of all, I hate the idea of, of Heal as a false nine. Yeah. Um, that seems like a, a, an awful idea to me. Uh, you know, I think the Revolution need an out-and-out striker, and right now I think that does look like a weakness. Um, I think you know, Bunbury is probably a better option than Aguadello. But you know, to give the Revolution the benefit of the doubt, we haven't seen Juan Caicedo yet. You know, maybe he's the answer up there. He didn't show he was in preseason. Um, but you know, there, there's still the hope that Juan Caicedo can step up and, and kind of be that guy. I think the Revolution to have any success absolutely need to play with a, a true um, striker. And you know, it, there there were times I think in in um, the the first game of the season where it almost looked like they were trying to play with a, a false nine with you know Diego up there or, or heel up there, and it just doesn't strike me that he's that type of player or that the Revolution have that type of system to succeed playing that way. So I, I think that you know they need a star striker, and if it's not going to be Caicedo, then yeah, maybe that is the position they need to find a DP. Um, but that'd be pretty embarrassing for the Revolution when you talk about roster construction again, as, as Carl did, uh, you know, be spending 600K plus in Aguadelo, you know, having a, a TAM or DP player in Caicedo, um, and you know neither of those guys being good enough to, to be your striker and then have to go out and find a, a DP. Uh, that, that, again, is another issue of, of some really poor roster construction if that's the case i'm gonna disagree with with uh sean here that um you know i i think that that bunbury um can work as your as your striker if you have those three creators behind him which is why i think you need to get diego into the starting lineup uh if it's going to work that way ideally you know um Caicedo is going to be Juan Caicedo is going to be the answer to that that uh, that problem, um, and and as Sean mentioned, um, allocating so many resources to uh, a position where you've already spent a lot of a lot of money on um, it isn't the best uh, best roster building, although it would fit into the Revs' mo. Um, but I, I think, and you could I guess say the same thing about about defensive uh, midfield where Zahivo is a relatively high-priced player and and uh, I, I really think that's the the side of the field um, or if you're not going to if you're not going to start Pena, Heal and Diego all together that you need to add to the right wing more than you need to add to the forward spot so uh, personally uh, I don't think that's the, the place where you need to invest uh, specifically right now. No, yeah, you've already you've already made your signing. You're just waiting for the debut of of JF Caicedo up top, and you have to hope that he's going to be a, a double digit goal scorer because he's replacing uh, Teal Bunbury, who pretty much had that production last year. You have to hope Gill can put up similar numbers that Diego Fagundes had in the middle um, with goals and assists combined. Uh, and those are those are big asks um, for players who are not, you know, unknown commodities, but also not, you know, you're, you're asking them to do something with a brand new team and a brand new league uh, and maybe a system they're not used to, to playing. That's a big adjustment for them. Uh, the only position to me that I would spend right now on the Rebs would be um, going at the DP level anyway, would be holding midfielder. Um, we, we haven't seen um, this team play well uh, since Jermaine Jones left. And that was the last time you had a big time holding midfielder uh, in the center, uh, protecting the back line and, and, and helping start the counterattacks. And it worked out really, really well. You, you've had a lot of guys who have tried, um, 
Xavier Kawasi, uh, Wilfred Zahibo, Luis Caicedo, all playing next to, to Scotty Caldwell. And and Scotty Caldwell still look as as wonderful as ever. I, I love him to death. But you need someone there who's who's a big time player who can affect games. And I'm, we're not really seeing it from Zahibo. We're not sure. You know, Caicedo is good. We're not sure if he's great. Um, and, and that would be the only spot I think that the Revs would really be looking to upgrade. But again, it's tough because you're right. You've already made a, a couple of signings. You're already spending uh, a TAM or, or, or whatnot on, on two players at that position. Now you're asking to go and spend uh, DP money there. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a big ask. Again, the, the roster building we can question uh, till the cows come home. But, you know, right now, you know, the Revs needed all to come together and they needed to come together uh, quickly, whether that's, you know, Caicedo, uh, JF Caicedo up top, whether it's Diego wide right, Pania wide right, whatever whatever the combination is, uh, this team needs to find it uh, quickly because uh, you can lose a championship uh, run in March uh, for sure. Well, and, and so much of their schedule is front-loaded too. Yeah. They play a lot of games early in the, these early months too. So if you're running out the same lineups week after week or if you can't find that right combination until July, um, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult to catch up. Um, kind of sticking with the uh, uh, questions at forward, uh, Michael asks us, everyone is complaining we don't have a solid number nine. Why won't Friedel go two at the top? No sense in putting a mediocre option at the top alone when you know they won't produce. Um, Sean, I'll kick it back over to you to start it again. Um, what do you think about two forwards up top? Uh, and, and are you opposed to it? Do you think it's a decent idea? What do you think? So in in general, I don't hate the idea, but I I don't think that solves the Rose problems. Um, you know, you look at this game, they weren't creating chances. Having a second forward up top, I'm not sure, you know, helps them. You know, it, I don't I don't know if there's a forward out there that create chances on his own. I don't think the Revolution necessarily have that. You know, Bunbury is a guy that can use his pace sometimes to you know to to make a chance happen. Aguadelo, you know, at his best can sometimes you know do a trick here to to get a chance going. But you know, if the midfield's not producing chances, I'm not sure that you know having two fours up top helps that much, um, particularly if none of those fours are great holdup guys. And I don't think Aguadel has been a great holdup guy his first few games. And I'm not sure Bunbury's, you know, thrives on that as, you know, he did admirably last year there, but I, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't think two fours is the answer. Um, with that said, if, you know, if my theory from, from this game and, and I think Carl's theory as well, that, that heel might actually be better on the wing, um, then it starts to make more sense to think about, you know, playing without a number two, a true number 10 and maybe playing with two strikers and, you know, maybe even play Fagundes as your, you know, your, your second striker behind somebody and, and have heel out on the wing and, and Pania out on the other wing. And, and, and then maybe it makes some sense if you're completely changing up the tactics, but uh, it didn't strike me that last game that, you know, adding a second striker was going to solve their problems. And the other problem with adding a second striker is what, what position are you sacrificing? Are, are you sacrificing the number 10 are you sacrificing one of the holding midfielders? Are you going to a diamond? Are you going to a flat 4-4-2? You know, it, it's great to think like, okay, we want to have two strikers. Okay, great. What's the rest of the lineup now? Um, I don't know that New England could play a 4-4-2. I don't know if they have two guys who could really go like box-to-box number eight type roles. I think you can maybe get away with Scotty as one. I don't know who if you can have Scotty and Gill do those roles. So, you know, that's sort of the other problem. I think problem. it would have to be Caicedo. It probably would have, it would probably have to be Caicedo. So now you're just saying, all right, we're going to take our two number sixes and Scotty and Caicedo and say, all right, now we're going to have so two number six, we're going to have two number eights. And I'm not sure I'm not sure that's the best spot you want to be in. Um, I, I don't mind the idea of of maybe a flat four midfield of, say, Ponia, Scotty, El Caicedo, and, and Gill. And maybe you have Diego as kind of sort of that weird – 
kind of not so much false nine, but sort of, I just call it a floating nine where it's like, yes, we're playing Diego as a striker, but Diego kind of sort of does what he wants. When the ball's on one side of the field, he can drop back uh, and, and, and maneuver around. And that helps Pania get forward or Gil get forward or um, Caicedo get forward. Um, you know, little things like that where, where you have another player up front to play off of the guys back to goal kind of sort of roles. No, it's not the new England strength, but it's certainly something they have to look at if they're having problems creating and one of the solutions would be put more guys forward, whether that's, you know, have Zahibo crash in more, have Scotty crash in more, have the fullbacks go forward. You, you know, there, there has to be ways for New England to, if you're having problems with the people you have up front now, adding people is a way to solve that problem. It might not be the best way, but it is a way. Um, and I don't think, I, I think that is something they're going to have to look at if, you know, two, three weeks down the road, the offense still looks like what it is now. I, I just, I don't, like the idea of uh, adding another striker unless uh, you're able to play 12 players. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just, I don't think that there's another area of the field that you can really sacrifice uh, given the personnel and the style of play that, that Friedel prefers. And I'd, I'd sooner go to a, a false nine or to, to wingbacks or something like that than uh, to add another a second striker, I think. No, I agree. I, I think the the main key issue I have is, is where where do you sacrifice elsewhere on the field? And and right. you know I, I think you're having enough difficulties creating chances out of the midfield. I think taking away another midfielder isn't really going to uh, be b- very beneficial to the team. So it'll probably um, be more detrimental to the defensive side. That's the other problem we haven't mentioned. You're taking away probably one of the holding midfielders, and you're asking them now to be you know more two way players instead of we're going to sort of stay at home and protect the back line. Um, and that's not something that New England has really shown that they can do is, you know, do go have a good, competent offense and protect the back line at the same time without the two holding midfielders. The couple times in preseason, they went to like a 4-1-4-1. The back line was a mess because there was no one in front of them to shield uh, a lot of those uh, entry passes. So, you know, like I said, there can be works in progress. There can be things you can balance and iron out, but, but these aren't things you should really be trying to do in season, um, unless you're blowing something up and going for a full rebuild, which, as far as we can tell, this team is not doing. Just one last point on that, too. If you, you know, like you were saying, if you take away a holding midfielder, you know, now all of a sudden Castillo can't really afford to bomb forward anymore because yep. there's nobody there to drop back. You know, all of a sudden, are you going to put heel as, you know, kind of a two way player? And, you know, then you're taking away from his strengths and not letting him create in the way that you'd like to see him do it. Um, I just think you're creating more problems, you know, with the exception of the idea of, you know, having heel play on the wing and playing Caldwell and Caicedo as your two central midfielders and, you know, Pania on, on the wing and you know, something like that, which I, I still don't think is great. I could, I could see that being worth experimenting with in preseason. Um, but with the exception of that, I think if you you know don't play two of Caldwell's Ahibo and Caicedo, I think two of those guys need to be on the field, you know, for several of the other guys in this team to be effective. And we'll, we'll kind of, Shifting from offense to defense, we did get a question from Mike Kennedy uh, about the game yesterday. Uh, was throwing caution to the wind in the second half a smart decision against a counterattacking team like Columbus? Um, and we kind of touched upon this earlier um, about how, uh, you know, they obviously got more and more aggressive over the game and the defense kind of held it together. But it's two straight weeks where they kind of held it together. I, I don't think it was necessarily the wrong move. Um, I'll, I'll start with you, Jake. Uh, what were your thoughts about the Revs' uh, second attack, se- second half tactics? Um, I think it, it honestly was sort of the, the same as the first. Uh, 
I said earlier, I don't think New England forced Columbus into doing a whole lot that was special. Um, the first goal was very, very good. There was very patient buildup from Columbus, and then a very, very, very good cross that maybe Mancian can do better with, maybe Knight can do better with, but at the end of the day, it was a really, really good goal. The second goal, you've got nine guys forward, and you, you give up, you know, as artists tap into the second half. I don't have a problem with that. I don't think this is a team where we need to worry about goal difference and and making the playoffs. Um, this is either a team if we sneak into the playoffs and, and we have to worry about goal difference. You know, this is a team that we need to be. This is a team that needs to be aggressive, uh, and they're going to have to take chances. And and in doing so, they're also going to give up a lot of chances. And it, it'll be up to the defense uh, either to correct some of those mistakes if there are mistakes that are leading to those types of chances or just to be able to withstand the pressure for as long as they need to get themselves reorganized. Um, yeah, you're going to see a team give up goals like that when you're trying to chase uh, an equalizer. Uh, it's going to happen. It's not the end of the world. Um, at that point, Columbus has already won the game, whether it matters 1-0 one one or 2-0. Um, at the end of the day, you still have zero points, and that's the only thing that you should really be caring about. Um, I, I like the aggressiveness at the end. I like Buchanan going forward. I like Rennix going forward. Um but also maybe that needs to start in more of the 70th minute. Um, you know, you're bringing two subs on at halftime. Nothing really changes until you bring on Buchanan. At that point, you're just throwing the kitchen sink at Columbus and hoping something sticks. And that's not that's not tactics. That's not offense. That's that's desperation. And, and you don't want to be in that situation, um, particularly at home. Um, but, no, I, I think, you know, overall, I think the defense was, was fine. You know, giving up that goal doesn't change my opinion that I think the defense has improved. Most of that has to do with, I think, just – the mere presence of Edgar Castillo being good at left back. Um, everyone else has been the two center backs. I think have been fine. Um, you know, when you have the two center backs getting the support they need from their fullbacks in front from their holding midfielders, the, the back line is not terrible. It just looks like it at times when that support structure breaks down. Yeah. yeah and I'd say, oh, I, I was just going to say, I, I think overall too, we have to give some credit to the defense. I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but um, other than that last second goal, which was kind of, you know, whatever, um, they've, they've really given up two goals over, over two games. Um, we've seen some really solid defending. I, I don't know if it's going to be able to hold up all season, but, uh, I, I think I agree that, um, you have to be aggressive. You have to at least take one point at home. I feel, um, I, I think coming away with a, a loss yesterday is a horrible, horrible result. And it says a lot about your team this early in the season. So, um, the difference between a one, nothing loss and a two, nothing loss to me is not a huge deal. Yeah, I'm with I'm with both of you guys there. That uh, the the final score doesn't necessarily matter. It's the amount of points that you take from the game. So I don't have a problem with you know uh, trying to make something happen. And there wasn't a ton of intention behind uh, the, the pushing forward at the end. But um, that's just kind of how it goes, I guess. And and uh, and what um, we've come to expect maybe in in the uh, Brad Friedel, uh, tactical, uh, 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 book, but, um, you know, it, it, I guess, you know, the hope is that, uh, you know, the revs have this, uh, opening day, uh, home opener winning streak. They're usually pretty good at home that, uh, maybe, uh, the, there's a little, uh, extra inspiration to want to get, um, to salvage that point in front of the home crowds. And, you know, they're, if the revs, do get into the playoffs. I mean, it's going to be as it has been the past 
few seasons where they're looking to squeeze in. And uh, so every point is is really important. And uh, you, you have to go for it because that, that one point might end up being the difference between them and Philadelphia or whoever it is. You know, I honestly don't have an issue with them with them throwing caution to the wind either. I think that this was a game where Columbus, you know, had their lead, was willing to sit back. The press wasn't causing them any problems. Um, you know, nothing was really going for the Revolution offensively. Again, I don't like the the sub two substitutions at halftime. I'm not a fan of that. But you know, really trying to attack in the second half, I, I don't have a problem with it. And it's you know worth noting too that Columbus, you know, for all of you know throwing caution to the wind, Columbus managed three shots in the second half, and two of them came in the last ten minutes. So it's not like whatever the Revolution was doing was you know leaving all sorts of holes that Columbus was exploiting or that Columbus was even trying to exploit. They were, you know, Columbus was very comfortable the whole game. The revolution never really threatened them. They were perfectly fine, you know, sitting back in control um, with that one nothing lead. So, you know, when a team is playing like that, I think, you know, it's probably the right approach to, to kind of throw caution in the wind and to do so sooner rather than later with the way the revolution were playing. Final question to wrap it up. Randy asks us, uh, and, and this one might get some colorful responses. Uh, liked seeing the kids play, but are there any signs this team will be different, let alone better, than last year's? I don't know who wants to take that. Uh, my answer would be no. Yeah, I uh, I did not like seeing the kids play. And <laughs> and I know that um, there's some excitement over the, you know, what could be and what these players could develop into. But, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, I didn't think it was the, the time or the place um, for that and uh, or that any of them were uh, necessarily ready for that spot. Um, and overall, I still don't think uh, no, that this team is any different from last year's team. It might even um, be worse than last year's team. Um, and uh, I guess it all depends. And this is the unknown, whether there is a, another big addition. And, and if that can finally complete this uh, 10th year in a row that Mike Burns has built a weird roster and, and make it uh, a little bit uh, more balanced and, and uh, not get exposed as they traditionally have been. Look on paper, I think the the roster is absolutely better on the field. That it, it hasn't looked any better. Um, and you know, like I've said before, the Revolution benefited last year early on from teams being a bit surprised by Friedel's press and got a lot of points that way early in the season by teams that weren't ready for it. Um, Columbus absolutely looked ready for it. They, you know, turnovers were there were a few. There was the Castillo one, but you know, generally they didn't look rattled by the press. Last year, teams at the beginning of the season looked rattled by the press. So even if the roster is better, if you know Friedel, as I discussed earlier, doesn't have a plan B, and I don't think he does based on this game um yeah the, the team is going to be worse this year by, by the pure fact that nobody's going to be surprised when the revolution come at them and, and you know play a high line and really press well the, the thing is the roster is better um in terms of overall talent but then you have to consider that mls overall keeps getting better and um are the revs doing any more than just keeping pace with other teams improving season by season and the league itself getting higher quality overall. And if you look at, so it's, it, maybe it's a better roster and we have to still see it full strength than last season, but it, did they improve uh, 5% over last season? Whereas the rest of the teams are improving 10% over last season. I think that uh, in comparison to the competition um, that there's no significant improvement. Yeah, it's it's tough to judge this and say like, well, the revolution definitely didn't get better. I, I'd like to think that they did. Just just the addition of Castillo, 
at left back. Again, I want to reiterate last year how awful New England was defensively because they did not have a left back for two-thirds of the year. And that coincides with the same two-thirds of the year where everyone figured out, oh, hey, the Reds' press isn't really all that great. Um, New England needs their their two major additions to be significant improvements over the players that they're replacing. They need J.F. Caicedo to be probably a 15-goal scorer to do better than what Teal Bunbury did last year at the same position. They need Carlos Gill to be you know, almost a 15 and 15 type player, which I think is unrealistic. But if he can add um, and make others around him better and improve, say, uh, whoever's on the right wing, get them more involved, um, maybe get Pania a few more goals or a few more assists, you know, make play others around him better in ways that I'm not sure Diego Fagundes can. But Diego Fagundes is a different uh, attacking midfielder in that he's, I think, only great when he's running the counterattack. He's not a great uh, cam when he's got to be possession based. Um, that's the, the, where I think Gill is going to hopefully help new England in the long run. Um, and this, this additional elite player needs to be a starting caliber and he needs to be probably a borderline, you know, all-star type candidate. If this team is going to be a borderline playoff team, like, um, I think Carl said it right. Like this is a team like, yes, they're, they're getting better, but they're not getting better at the same rate. Other teams in the league are getting better. Um, other teams in the league are improving and developing their draft picks with full USL two teams. They're signing homegrowns by the dozen and getting them game minutes for two or three years before they even set foot, um, on an MLS roster. Um, you know, I don't necessarily need new England to be a team that spends $50 million a year, like Atlanta or Toronto. Um, but there, there needs to be, you know, some sort of structure within the organization from roster building to roster development where, you know, a, a player like Rennix doesn't get lost for two or three years because there's no first team minutes. Um, a player like Haravo should have almost a full season's worth of USL games now in his fourth or fifth season as a professional. Uh, and he doesn't. Um, those are the areas where New England lacks and where it shows is in the standings on the MLS roster. And, you know, we can make all the corrections to the first team and all the additions we want to the first team. Uh, at some point, you have to make similar steps to what the rest of the league is doing in order to catch up. And right now, they're not doing those. Yeah, they, they certainly seem like they're running in place and can never seem to catch up to uh, certainly the elite teams in MLS. But um, I, I think it's going to be a bit of a struggle for them to make the playoffs uh, through two games. I, I don't think you can have a lot of confidence and there, there isn't a whole lot of positives. So um, moving on really quickly to comments. Uh, we're running a little bit long, so I'm just going to read through these. Uh, I'm not going to ask for any reactions, but if you guys have any reactions, just jump on in. Um, Kiernan Reynolds says Fagundes should be starting, start him, and then there would be no need for a halftime sub. Um, Jared Michaels says Agudelo and Pania came off too early, in my opinion, but the kids did play well. Uh, no true striker, no goals. Um, any Revs UK kind of seconds the uh, young kids that he was impressed with them. He says, uh, we can work the ball into the attacking third, then nothing. Nothing. Positives to take from the game is that Renix and Buchanan looked ready. Um, a lot of people uh, disagreed with us on uh, how ready the, the young kids are. I, I think I, the kind of consensus we have is that they need a little bit more seasoning and maybe some minutes at the USL. But um, I saw a lot of people that feel like they should be thrown into the lineup or at least be coming on uh, as a regular sub. So it'll be interesting to see um, how they go forward. Um, Adam McLean says uh, Agudelo shouldn't be out there, especially not at striker, which we, we more or less said earlier. Um, he has not looked good either game. Uh, if Caicedo uh, 2 is not ready, I'd rather see one of the kids up top. 
Um, and then uh, MJ said uh, they cannot defend the counterattack if their press is broken. Uh, center backs are not good enough to cover up for the press, which kind of goes against what we've been saying. I, I think he, he's certainly a little more pessimistic than uh, what we felt. Um, Friedel has no answer to the uh, no answer to the attack continually getting funneled to the left side and getting shut down by Columbus. Revs have no solution for a right side attack, so Columbus only had to defend half of the pitch most of the match. Um, and then finally, uh, one more comment from the offside trap. Uh, the good was Castillo and De La Mayo were fantastic. I thought defensively we looked solid. Uh, also, the kids looked good, hoping one of them starts next game. Uh, bad, way too many bad passes, d- despite some decent spells of possession early on. Ugly, uh, Wilfred Zahibo is bad. Uh, I don't know why he stayed in the game, which I think that's kind of everyone's thoughts uh, across the board. Uh, he also says we need another DP soon, and he suggests Bobby Wood. Although, uh, as I say, we, we kind of talked about um, maybe a designated player might be, be better in the defensive midfield uh, or along the back line. I don't, um, so uh, I don't know if you guys have any final thoughts or if you guys have any thoughts on those comments uh, or if you have any shout outs. Uh, Sean, I'll start with you. My, my only comment is I, I would think the Revolution need to hit more of a home run than, than Bobby Wood at this point. Um, who hasn't scored more than five goals in a season since 2015, albeit he's playing at a high level in the Bundesliga. Um, but with his knee injury history and you know his you know, lack of really producing too many goals since that one breakout season in 2015-16, I'm not sure that he would be the guy that would you know solve the Revolution's problems, especially as we discussed with you know how much the Revolution are already putting into the striker position and the other areas of need. Um, but that's that's all I, all I've got from from those comments. Yeah, I guess I guess my final comment would be that uh, one thing I don't think we have discussed um, at all, uh, just in general in, in the Revs world, um, is the, the goalkeeper situation, which uh, personally, um, you know, I don't think is working out great for them. I think that uh, Knighton is a high-level backup um, and is a capable starter, but it's, and he hasn't been bad. He's been pretty good this season, but uh, he is what he is, and, uh, and at best, he's going to be a league average starter, and that either speaks to, um, you know, just Cody Cropper and Matt Turner haven't developed, or, or uh, I'm not sure exactly what's what's going on there. Um, but we saw, and one one thing that was a big story last year was uh, that you know Matt Turner was playing out of his mind uh, early on, and that really made the extra difference um, for the Revs in terms of, and I, I also you know the league adjusting to their press, but uh, to have a, a, a truly high level goalie um, is something that the Revs have only had for basically a, a half season or, or maybe even less uh, when Turner ended up uh, regressing a little bit uh, since the days of, of Matt Reese. And um, I think that's something that, that doesn't get enough ten- attention. And uh, I'm not sure if that's an area where you, where you upgrade because, you know, you keep four, four goalies uh, on your roster. But um, I, I just think that's something that is also holding the close. I want to just mention to Carl that how dare you, sir, forget Bobby Shuttleworth's second half of 2014 where he was God in the playoffs <laughs> and made no sense because um, – no, he's not wrong. The Red Skull keeper situation I think is odd only because I think you almost want Knighton as the number two. Figure out who the number one is, either Turner or Cropper, and then send Cropper or Turner somewhere else. Try and get something for him. You don't need – 
three goalkeepers of of or two developing goalkeepers and and a, and an MLS veteran, there, there's a way to balance that because you only are playing you know one game. I thought it was great a handful of years ago. You know, the Revolution could you know send Trevor Spangenberg just down to Richmond, and he basically was there the entire year. Like that's really where you want your number three goalkeeper to be is getting minutes um, at the USL level. Um, you know, overall, you know, I I think going back to what what Brad Friedel said earlier, um, we're if if there were major changes made to this year, we we've still yet to to see them, and I think that that's the biggest problem right now is is that um, you know, New England, the Revolution last year they did have a, a, a great press and did catch people off guard and, and people adjusted to it. And we've been waiting for them to adjust back as, as a team, as, as individual players um, with, with either different lineups from Friedel or, or whatever. And, and we haven't seen it yet. It's been sort of a rolling several month discussion that's now leaked into 2019 of, well, these are things that they're doing that aren't working and they continue to do them or they just try to do it more. And that's sort of the definition of insanity and hoping that you're going to get better results uh, by doing the same thing. And, and it hasn't worked yet. So I don't know how drastic New England needs to do with either their tactics or, or their lineup or something. But, um, you know, a, a few more games like this and, and you're going to be significantly behind um, where you need to be in, in, in a playoff race. Um, you know, you need to almost come back from Toronto with almost a win at this point because you didn't win at home. And then you need to come back and play Cincinnati as a team who's probably not good and you probably need to beat them at home and now you're at seven points through four games and now you can go ah maybe we can build off this maybe this is where we can stay in that middle of the eastern table for the entire year and cause problems in november um as opposed to just laying down and your season being over by august um and and right now we're we're closer to the the season being over in august than we are causing problems in november and uh, we need to turn that around quick. Uh, I agree with everything you guys said. And uh, I just want to reiterate, we are a pro Matt Turner podcast. So hashtag free Matt Turner. Yes. Uh, hopefully he gets his uh, starting job back. Um, and and, and to, to add on to your point, Jake, uh, Matt Turner has, has credited some, uh, he, he got loaned down to Richmond a couple times too. And he yeah. said that it, it helped him prepare for the MLS. So um, I, I certainly would hope to see uh, a uh, you know one of the keepers get loaned out and and backups across the board. Brian Wright, I'd like to see Brian Wright uh, get some minutes at the USL level, but um, for some reason the Revs don't seem to want to do it. Um, I just want to kind of note too while we're talking about uh, USL players, um, Jay Heaps is uh, down at Birmingham and uh, Tommy Stone. Uh, they let out their uh, first starting lineup. They have their first game today, and three former Revs are in it. Um, Femi is in the starting lineup at striker. Kobayashi uh, is in the midfield, and uh, Trevor Spangenberger. Uh, no, Trevor Spangenberg. Sorry, uh, second Spangenberg reference we got uh, today. Uh, he's mm-hmm. starting in net for them. So good luck to Birmingham tonight. Uh, and they lost two nothing. Oh, did they lose two nothing? <laughs> oh, oh yep. man. Uh, well, geez, way to end on a sad. Sorry to ruin it. Hashtag any rev south. I had a uh, a final final thought, which is uh, also pessimistic. It's just that. Um, you know, being in the Revs locker room yesterday, uh, there just wasn't any spirit there. And it felt it felt like the end of 2018 all over again. Uh, and granted, you know, when it's a loss, uh, guys generally just want to get out of there. Uh, but there wasn't any – nobody was talking to each other. Um, the only people – Mancien seemed in a decent mood, but uh, almost in a – bizarrely uh, decent mood saying that they dominated and then uh, Renix was you know happy to get his, his first MLS minutes but apart from that there wasn't there didn't seem to be that vibe of like 
you know, uh, okay, we lost today, but we're going to get back out there and, and set this get course uh, correction and, and, and get back into things. It just felt like, uh, like I said, like the end of 2018 is carried over into the beginning of this season. And I think that's a bad sign for the refs. Not, not a really good uh, result. Not, not, nothing, not a good point uh, this early in the season, too. I think there was a lot of excitement after last week and, and the beginning of the season, and um, I think a lot of the air has been uh, pushed out of the tires. So um, you can follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap. You can also like our Revolution Recap page on Facebook. Uh, please also leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Um, guys, uh, where can we find you on Twitter? I'll start with you, Sean. You can find me at Sean L. Donahue. I'm at uh, I'm at Carl Sutherland's. I'm at jcatneys43, also occasionally at the Bent Musket, where we occasionally write things uh, when I'm not uh, at work or sick, which is kind of sort of what I did all of last year. Uh, Midnight Shift is great, but it really ruins your ability to write and sleep properly. We'll be back next week against Toronto FC. Uh, that is a bit of a that is a Sunday match, so I'm not sure when we'll be releasing the episode, but we will be doing an episode at some point next week. So uh, until then, thanks for listening and go Revs. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.